Welcome to Talking Heads on USA Global TV, starring the one and only wonderful Dr. Jacqueline. It's a prestigious place where world-class influencers and experts meet, and where you'll find the most trusted advisors and coaches for all things in life and business. Visit usaglobaltv.com to sign up for our newsletter, get the value you need, and be first in line to learn about events and giveaways and other valuable content. Connect with us. Email Dr. Jacqueline at usaglobaltv.com to talk about how you can become part of USA Global TV. That's USA Global TV, where the doctor is always in. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today at USA Global TV and radio. We're coming to you live from our studio in Boca Raton, Florida. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Kerbeck, the president, founder, and chief listening officer here at our network. And our show today is The Art of Creating Mental Health Wealth. Let's welcome the star of our show. She's been quite busy since we last saw her. Let's find out what she's been up to. Janetta Barry in the Epiphany Process, welcome. Hello, Dr. Jacqueline, and hello to all our viewers and listeners out there. It's wonderful to be back. And a huge welcome to any newcomers to this platform and show today. Great to have you with us. It's great to have you with us and have you back. And there's been some changes in your life. And when we talk about mental health wealth, you've done some things that I think really helps solidify uh, feeling empowered and feeling a part of something and a connection. Do you want to share more, Janetta? Yeah, um, at the age of 64, when I swore it would never, ever happen again, and 18 years after having got divorced uh, two Saturdays ago, my partner and I, Andy, got married, and uh, we're in Kenya at the moment. And uh, we had said when we first talked about it, we'd go off quietly and, and do do it quietly, and then suddenly friends here in kenya and uk and and family who could make it said not going to happen we have to do something special and in actual fact it it was the most amazingly heart opening precious day um without angst uh, we just went with the flow and what worked worked and what didn't didn't we didn't get it over complicated and it just load we're still getting guests we only had 15 guests and we still got guests coming through saying it's a day they could never forget and how precious our vows were we did some very special vows as well so that that's what i've been up to and then uh family and um some of our uk friends and uh, andy and i went up north kenya to a remote lake uh, to an island in that remote lake and uh, spent some time there as part of our honeymoon with all the family as well. So it's been such an amazing time. And then we we went to other places visiting other people in different conservancies here in Kenya who are also special friends and they were there on the day. So it's been a, a very full on two weeks. But lovely to be back online again and, um, yeah, to be with you all. Well, that's brilliant. And once again, congratulations. And thanks for sharing some of the beautiful pictures. It was an amazing setting. And 
I just would like for you to talk a little bit. I see our guest is backstage, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the fact that you said in your opening, this is never going to happen again. I am never getting married again. And we do this, right? We set these limitations and these boundaries. Sometimes it's because of fear. Sometimes it's because we truly believe it. But what can you share with our audience about when you made that commitment to yourself and then an evolution took place and change came as a result? Yeah, you know, that word evolution hits it on the head, Dr. Jacqueline, because when my divorce came through 18 years ago, I had already been married before that. So my two boys are from my first marriage and my two girls are from my second. So when the second marriage came to an end, um, obviously I was dealing with a lot. I was also dealing with the death of my daughter at the same time. It all imploded and happened at the same time. And and I couldn't see what the reason to get married would be about. You know, for me, before now, marriage was about uh, creating um, a bond, especially if you're going to have children, that was a little bit more safe for, for those children. But what's the point at 64 um, getting married again? And that's where I was and went through three no two relationships after my marriage two two relationships and um all of them i was going lovely and nice and pleasant but no and then i got to the end of the second one in 2012 and went i'm not going into another relationship because i need to work on me it's so easy to say the other person is all at fault but it's always a, a, a two-way tango. And um, so for six years, I worked on me um, and all my charges and all my childhood happenings that I had realized so much of my knee-jerk reactions in a relationship came from that child, had nothing to do with that partner and I. And it's also attracting a type of person that wasn't matching up to what would give me uh, that sense of um, togetherness and peace of mind. And once I felt I had done quite a lot of work, because I never stopped working on myself, even to this day, I still go off and daily work on myself. Once I felt that, that had a lot of that had been addressed, um, then I started saying, okay, I'm ready to attract the person that's now in my value system that I had got to. And that's what I did. And um, uh, yeah, it, it's been an amazing journey with, with, with Andy. We, we were stuck in lockdown for 24 seven for nearly two years in UK. Um, and if that can't test a relationship, I don't know what can. Um, in fact, if anything, we were just so grateful for each other and not living on our own in isolation. And um, being able to communicate with each other, for me, in my value system is the most important thing. And when we're not able to, we're, we're able to do something about it. And that makes a big difference. So when we got married two weeks ago, um, that, that was there. And it was all in our vows. The vows were amazing, amazing. Um, 
but that's for another time because really that that's a guest i'd really like to have on our show um and i'm busy contacting him and his name is neil donald walsh and conversations with god and i have direct contact with him so let's see if we can get him on the show Wow, that sounds fantastic. And what a beautiful, inspirational story. Thank you for being open and sharing that. I want to explore a little bit further. Our guest is no longer here, just so you know. So uh, one thing I'd love to just look at is we put these boundaries in our lives and we put up these walls and many times it's to protect ourselves, but we also miss out on opportunities. And by missing out on opportunities, a lot of things can take place in our lives. What are your thoughts about why we set limitations for ourselves? When you think a child with the curiosity, baby crawling around, looking at everything and being open, and then all of a sudden one day, I don't know what age it happens. I'm sure it's different for every one of us. It's like, oh, I can't do this and I can't go there and I can't call her. I can't. What do you think happens that all of a sudden there are boundaries and walls that we put up? It's an interesting question and one I used to ask myself a lot. Having worked on myself primarily and now on with many people all around the world in all types of situations, it's very apparent with the work I do that when we get hurt or, or compromised or fearful or, or we learn to judge uh, with, with half a perception of what's going on, then this knee-jerk reaction to protect ourselves comes in. And when you haven't got the skills and tools to deal with what's happening and understand what it's giving you, you try and avoid it. It becomes a void, a place that you avoid. So you avoid the void of of, or you try and avoid feeling that pain because by by default we're we're wired to want to feel more pleasure than pain so if things are very painful and we haven't been able to balance out how to deal with that pain and how to embrace it so that it works with us instead of against us then we'll avoid it in the future um, and it becomes a void in our lives when we don't uh, step into doing things that that serve us because that pain is what is remembered rather than understanding and getting the whole picture of what didn't work and how it can work for you. Um, when you're only seeing how it doesn't work for you, you're going to avoid it. So it's finding out how to embrace what didn't work understand its value and move forward with it so that it becomes a powerful tool to be able to step out and take new risks and new ways and new ways of negotiating things that are a bit scary. When you can speak from your truth and your wisdom without the distraction of overthinking or overfeeling or the distraction of that pain, that you experienced in the past, when you can bring that into open-hearted manageability, new words start tumbling out your mouth and suddenly your risk-taking 
has as much advantage to disadvantage in a place of manageability and you step into it and you go mm, and then you adjust and and there's there's flexibility there in a place of balance rather than extreme roller coastering and that that's where i got to and that doesn't mean i don't have moments where i am completely out of balance again and i talk about this often i say when a when a toddler is learning to stand on two legs the very thing that they have to do is the opposite to what they're trying to do which is to fall down and fail in balancing because it's in falling down and failing that they get a whole load of skills and techniques and experience that gives them a holistic balance to stand back on their feet again it gets their muscle tone going their their ability to reason their ability to be discerning their ability to adjust their ability to have the freedom to make the choice to try again so if you're never falling down um you haven't got all those skills and techniques and experiences to find hone on so falling down is as as valuable and as in, as important as standing up and it's the same with this when you understand that when you've got it mostly in manageability but there'll be times where it's really not and you feel like what am i going to do and it feels so so overwhelming that's when you can use the skills and techniques to bring the pain of what didn't work so that that pain transforms and you can use the the lesson that it's given you not just here because here you can go yeah i can see it's given me this and but when you get it here and here together and the two are talking to each other that happens on an unconscious level and not many people know how to do that that's the secret great tips and obviously you are an expert in this area and it just shines through how you've helped so many people so thank you again for sharing that one um, thing i want to add is that. just that it's a, as a subsequent topic, as I mentioned to you earlier, I'm going to a new doctor today and I had to fill out all these forms. And of course, one of the questions is, are you single, married, divorced, et cetera? And I always find this offensive for some reason, but I'm divorced since 1999. And I thought I'm answering single because I am single. Like that was so long ago. But the reason I bring it up is that society puts these labels on us. The label of being divorced is different than the label of being single. To me, single is like, hey, available, open, interested, divorce, like failure, loser, closed chapter, didn't work. What are your thoughts about that and the labels that society put on us? It's a very good one because there's another one, spinster. That used to be used a lot, and that has an even worse connotation than divorcee, um, especially for women, less for men. Um, and yes, those labels are so easy, and, and we not only get given those labels, but we very easily allocate labels like that to ourselves. Um, you know, uh, so one teacher told you that your drawing was really sucked and that you were a useless drawer. So there's the label. And we take it and we go, yeah, that's my label. So that's an outside label or 
we try us at something and we fail at it, there we go, I can't do that, or I'm I'm this or I'm that, or when that sort of person's around me, I, I can't bear them, so I'm intolerant, or whatever it is, we give ourselves labels all the time. And those labels are very useful and helpful on one side because then it helps us to work out what we are and what we aren't and what we might want to be and not want to be and understand where that balancing act is but when it becomes the label or the labels that define you and then non-negotiable you get stuck and so for me uh i got over those labels of mrs ms divorced uh, you know if they want to know all that it, it's their stuff but it used to bother me as well and now i mean even now i haven't changed my name my, my new name is Miller, and um, I haven't changed it. I'm still in my second married name because I was born Warred, married Steedman, then married Barry. I've been Barry more than half my life, and now I'm Miller. So which label am I? Let me think about this. Well, I'm the label that feels it, it requires to be that label in that space time. So when I'm out with Andy and we're at, at, at the restaurant or at the shops, I'll say I'm Mrs. Miller, because I am. Uh, but when I'm presenting here, I've decided my label has been so long with the work I do. It carries an energy and a love, and it requires to be honored too. But that's my decision. So what anybody else thinks or feels or requires is their issue. Whereas before, it really mattered to me what other people thought or asked. Or I'm a little bit more relaxed about it, not always. But uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like it's appropriate when it feels appropriate to me. And who should have the choice but you? It's your life, your name, and absolutely. you should be able to make a decision for sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Have, yeah, we have a comment yeah. from one of our dear team members Roland Friedel. Hi, Roland. Roland is actually traveling through Europe. He's in Spain right now. He's in his motorhome. And he says, cheers from Spain and thanks for the amazing work you are doing. Thank oh, you, Roland. Thank you, Roland. Well, you so, know, uh, there's a reflection in this. Uh, I mean, the work you do is unbelievable. So thank you, too. Uh, I get quite kind of well. Really, you, 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 all, all of you. I mean, Dr. Jacqueline, everybody here on this platform, there's amazing. But Roland, a huge respect and shout out to you too, and thank you for that feedback. Yeah, he's a wonderful person, and great news because Lorraine is backstage. So um, we only have about twenty minutes left in our show. So what I'm thinking is, if you want to introduce her, and then I'll let the two of you really hone in on the topic for today. I will do. I'll give her a short intro, especially as we've had her on, on the show before. So uh, uh, I am very, very honored and uh, inspired to be welcoming back Lorraine Garnett. And Lorraine lives in New York. She lives in um, Manhattan. Um, and uh, Lorraine and I have a very special uh, back history where we work together for quite a few years and for some of those years I lived with her in Manhattan and uh, she's joined us again today. She's got quite a, a, an interesting backstory. I'll give an overview of it and uh, then she's going to move on from that story today with some really interest, interesting 
um, information on one of three books that she is uh, writing. She's my copywriter for The Epiphany Process and done a lot for World Jenny's Day and Insight Theatrical Production. And why Lorraine is so inspiringly interesting is that she was one of those children in a time where there were no labels for children who were feeling compromised, be it uh, autism or ADHD or whatever, uh, where they couldn't work out what it was that was stopping Lorraine from moving forward. And one of the things she often talks about growing up as a child was a, a, a page full of words looked like what she calls word salad to her. She couldn't read or write. And by the time she won and or, or was Emmy nominated for for some writing, she still couldn't read or write properly. And only by being able to transfer onto a, a keyboard was she able to start doing that. And uh, she and I have had an amazing evolution together as she started writing her own story, which she just couldn't do. Uh, she was very helpful with other people's stories, amazing, amazing wordsmith, but her own story. So she and I worked that through together with the epiphany process and being so close together. And that has helped and inspired her to decide that her her next three books, which um, she is uh, in the process of starting to happen, will now happen. And it took a lot of mental challenge, physical overcoming. She took a lot of decisions to get her uh, brain to rewire. Um, she did ballet, she did Feldenkrais, she's been doing all sorts of yoga, all, all types of techniques that's rewired her brain. Um, so that the, the, everything kind of flows together. And it, I mean, that takes a huge amount of dedication and, and a huge shout out and a huge, huge amount of respect. So I'm going to now hand over to introduce herself to about her, her, her one book today she's going to talk about. So ladies and gentlemen, I welcome back Irene Garnett. Hello, Janetta. And Hello. I am, by the way, under my name, I was tempted to write single. <laughs> Not Spencer. Single. <laughs> single. <laughs> I love it. So everybody, this is this is my dearest darling Lorraine. This is her apartment in Midtown Manhattan. She and I stayed there together for almost a year. It always makes my heart go good when I see the background. <laughs> it's like, oh, I miss you. I miss the, I miss the whole lifestyle of New York. But Lorraine, thank you for coming back and sharing your one of your three books. Do you want well, to give uh, an, an overview on that? We've got 20, first, less than just, 20 minutes. Okay, I can, do, I can say that my problem or challenge writing with writing for many years after I learned how to read, where I learned how to read when I was in my 30-something, when I learned when computers came along. But when I 
when I try to write, and this has been documented by a neurologist, my cerebral spinal fluid would stop flowing. <laughs> You've got MRIs showing it freezing. And I had to learn how to use my body differently, uh, find what in my body was causing it, what, what, what was I doing, and then how to retrain it, my muscles, which are, of course, controlled by my nerves, how to retrain things so it would not happen. And I'm proud to say I, I, there may be some freezing up, <laughs> but not enough to uh, keep me from A, writing, and B, uh, having ideas as I write. Now, what, now, three projects that I'm working on, that I, when we spoke the other day, I mentioned three projects that I want to work on. Uh, actually, it's more, but the first one will be, I want to write about you, Janetta, and you know that. And I do have a lot of notes. And um, your story is just filled with synchronicities. And they come at a time, and your synchronicities are inevitably accompanied by an emotional shift. Your book, um, the book you wrote about your emotional journey healing after your daughter killed herself, uh, it's about being, I wouldn't say either you were healed healed by the synchronicities or as you healed you brought on synchronicities but the two always came together and right I just finished writing an essay a short piece for somebody we both know who also experienced had a, a big healing experience accompanied by a synchronicity uh, this is not as many, uh, you've had like a zillion of them. You have them all the time. He had this one and he is convinced that synchronicities are caused by our brains. Oh, I just got a, uh, a message from you. Move back from the mic on your computer. Is this better? Where I am. Hello. Yeah, it's a little it's a little bit it's a little bit distorted. Um mm. but yeah, it is better. Okay. I don't know. Um there are some things I can do to toy with it, but we Okay, um, don't worry now. Don't worry yes. about it now. Lorraine, we've got very limited time. We've got about 15 minutes. And I know you were really inspired to talk about your mum today. Okay. I'm yeah, let, let's go on to that amazing story and that amazing book. All right. I'm not sure it's going to be a book. It just may be something I will write for the web. Um, it is about the very origins of what's going on today 
and has been going on for generations in between Israel and Palestine. Because how the how did it start? How did the Palestinians, as they said, lose their land? In the and my mother was there. It was a specific event. She was about 11 years old, but she remembers it very well. It was a land, there was a land deal between an American mutual fund and the Saudi royal family. There was no land grab where people, the Zionists came. The story is there was a land grab, the Zionists came and took their land. what happened was the Palestinians or the great-grandparents of today's Palestinians did not own the land. At least they may have thought they owned the land, but these Saudi royal family, they thought they owned the land. They owned it and various Arab sheikhs who were friends of theirs and the ancestors of the Palestinians were peasants on the land. And this was in 1930, after stock markets crashed all over the world. And remember, the Arab sheikhs and the Saudis were not filthy rich on oil the way they are today. They They were looking for money like everyone else. Now, there were people in in the United States who got out of the market in time and they needed a place to put their money. My grandfather managed a mutual fund of Americans who had gotten out of the market and put their money in this fund and they needed somewhere to invest it. Well, the old king, and now the patriarch of the Saudis, the ancestor of the current royal family, King Farouk, said to my grandfather, how about investing it in land in Palestine? Because they knew that At the time, it was the British protectorate, but they knew there was already in the works that it was going to become Israel and to own a vast tract of land along the coast, all beachfront property, would uh, the, the land would go up in value. So the deal was, My grandfather um, sat in a tent with a a bunch of sheikhs who didn't live there. They lived in Lebanon and Syria. They were absentee landlords, but they came to Palestine and my, uh, with uh, all under the auspices or blessing of the Saudi royal family, My grandfather purchased a vast tract of land 
in what is today Israel. He purchased it with other people's money. When he went there, he was wined and dined and welcomed with open arms by not just the sheikhs who technically own the land, but by the, the peasants who lived on the land. Now, the peasants who lived on the land, who greeted him, escorted him from the ship, escorted his family from the ship, uh, were his bodyguards, um, catered him to banquets. Uh, they were doing this because they were ordered to do so by the sheikhs who were their um, landlords. And uh, then later on, when those Palestinians, they were not considered Palestinians and they didn't think of themselves as Palestinians. They had no identity. They had no national or group identity. They were simply peasants living uh, or on the land of the Sheikh, oh, their Sheikh overlords, who, again, I said they may have thought they owned the land, but the ruling Sheikhs, the ruling class, did not think they did. The ruling class sold the land to an American mutual fund that my grandfather managed. And then later on, a lot of lies were told to cover up this origin. Now, this is a story I grew up with. My mother was there. She remembers being in a tent. Um, and which, when I say a tent, this was like a tent you'd see in a Hollywood movie. It was erected because the Sheikh had come to visit and he needed a place to meet his American guests and then, and then have a, uh, a banquet. And my mother remember, tells the story of how her dad and the sheikhs were in the tent closing the deal and she and my uncle, her brother, were told to go out and play and then they would be called when to come back. So they went out to play and they saw uh, Arab women with in, totally covered in the burqas and they went to the well to get water and the water they put in these huge vessels that they balanced on their heads. And one of my mother's vivid mem memories from her early teens is of these women in these black, totally covered in the black uh, urkas, balancing these huge vessels on their heads and walking like queens. <laughs> Lorraine, and, you know, I, I wanted to say to you what what an incredibly 
a powerful story, counter story. Uh, and I know that you grew up with it and you, you recently lost your mum uh, only a few, few uh, months ago. Uh, and she was almost a hundred, wasn't she? She was a hundred. She was already a hundred and two. Oh yes, that's right. She yeah, she overtook my mum because we were together, and I was going. Ah, I don't know if my mum's going to make a hundred, and I lost her first. So that's true. She was oh, wow, a hundred and two, and quite a feisty lady. So for you to go into now taking this story that she has told and obviously there's 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 some background to it to to show that this is how it was in having had the challenge you've had mentally and physically in writing what do you feel this project will give you in stepping into a zone that might cause quite a lot of controversy what what is right. it that you feel you can do differently because of what you've been through? A first place, I realized this would be very controversial because this whole story has been a cover-up. I don't know exactly all the reasons for the cover-up. The, at the time it happened, there was no Israel-Palestine conflict. Palestine was a British protectorate. The people who lived there did not have any kind of national identity. They just lived there. There were, and there were, and there were overlords, the sheikhs, who were looking for money. And they thought, oh, here is this American mutual fund that we could sell the land to. Now, a lot went down afterwards. There were, from what I understand, the whole conflict between the Zionists who came to settle. There, were, there weren't many of them at the time of this land deal. They came later. And there were the, the people who lived on, there were the peasants who lived on the sheikh's land. The conflict, my understanding, was stirred up by outside forces. There were various parties who wanted there to be a Zionist-Palestinian conflict. And they stirred it up. Um, I have heard firsthand stories from somebody who is now an American, but he did serve in the Israeli army. And he was um, privy to outside forces stirring up a conflict in where there might have been peace, but they didn't want it. Um, that's other first-hand information I have. But the big picture, I would really need to do a lot of research and find out what else was going on. Now, when my mom was 98, a friend of mine, who is the subject of another piece I want to write, 
that he is, he was, he's now deceased, but among other things, he was a political historian who knew quite a bit about the Israel-Palestine conflict and the various forces throwing, let's say, fanning the flames and keeping it going. And when I told him my mother's story, he said, I must interview her. And he kept saying, we've got, I've got to interview your mother. And, but by the time he finally got around to it, she had recently had a concussion. So yes, he went there with his video camera and interviewed her. But as I said, she'd recently had a concussion and her, although she did remember the, uh, uh, she could remember vivid details of being uh, in that tent as she, and she was not, she was very disorganized. She could not stay on one train of thought. So if he starts asking her about what she remembered, um, and these are things she heard, she wasn't there when her father was in negotiation with the Saudi royal family. She just knew about it because he was her dad. But when she was being interviewed by my friend uh, for videotape, she was much more interested in my grandfather's uh, uh, extramarital affair and how his girl, she didn't think his girlfriend was very pretty. <laughs> so. Oh dear, so it was just a little bit too late. You know, uh, Lorraine, it's just so inspiring to hear you taking all these unusual stories that are part of your background and past and doing something with it, with your wordsmithing. And whether it's a project or a book or whatever, it's going to be fascinating reading. And especially with you, because you have such a way with words through having been what you, I mean, the way, to our viewers and listeners, the way um, Lorraine has listened to all that I talk about and the way she wordsmiths it isn't like anything else I've had with anybody else who's written on my behalf. And I can't, I personally can't wait to read this piece. I can't wait to read the piece also uh, and, and the background on your friend, the political historian, who I also knew, um, <laughs> and get that story out too, because he, he is just another story as well that mind boggles me even now. Um, I can't wait to see what you bring out there and with your amazingly different way to, to craft this. And I want to thank you as we come to the end of this program um, for, for coming back on and sharing this amazing story uh, and being able to get it out there as a project because I do believe that the more and more that these stories are shared, the more balanced and open-hearted 
understanding starts happening and well done and kudos to you and before we finish off i'd love you anybody who'd like to reach out to lorraine she she creates websites and as i say she's a wordsmith of note lorraine where can people get hold of you email me or uh, should i write it down no just to... say it lorraine just say it lorraine dot garnett at gmail. Yeah. .com. Okay. So if you'd like to, to speak to Lorraine um, and uh, get hold of her via email, it's Lorraine.garnet, that's G A R N E T at gmail.com. And, and have a chat with her if you feel inspired to, to do similar that I have done with her. Um, that would be great. And Lorraine, thank you again for coming back with us today. Dr. Jacqueline, wonderful to spend time with you again. I know we're going on, Dr. Jacqueline and I are going on to the next program, which is my program I'm hosting and she's producing from, from behind the scenes. Um, and that's Talking Heads. And uh, each, each week we have a, a different subject. And today's subject is dealing with the fantasies and nightmares of romantic relationships from the lady who's just got married. So if you find that, oh gosh, talking about synchronicities earlier, you go, I'd really like to know more about that. And just to give you a soup song, you know how when you go into a new relationship and it's all fluffy and the heart's going like this and exciting and it feels like the rest of your life is just going to be an amazing ball of of love and laughter and all the things that you love about that person that you you just think oh they're so amazing and do you for those of you who identify with this after a while the very things you were infatuated with or attached to or love them for are the things that begin to drive you absolutely crazy and you dislike and perhaps even despise them for so if any of you relate to that, please join us on the other side of this program on Talking Heads. We'll talk more about it then. I'm going to give you techniques on how to bring that relationship into balance or any future relationship uh, you might be looking to step into. And again, once again, Lorraine, lovely to have you here. I can't wait to work more with you. Uh, in the future, Dr. Jacqueline, thank you for producing behind the scenes today. As we end off today, uh, and I'll see you on in this space this time next week as I send you lots of love. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>